0: Welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. My name is Anton Jäger.
1: And my name is Charlotte Johann.
0: And today we are talking to Dr. Felix Waldman. Felix is currently a research fellow at Christ College, Cambridge. Before starting his fellowship, he completed a history degree, an MPhil in political thought and intellectual history, and a PhD in history at Gonville and Keyes College, Cambridge. Felix's research is concerned with the intellectual history of Britain and Italy in the 17th and 18th centuries. He is also engaged in a wide ranging editorial work in this field. His edition of Further Letters of David Hume was published in 2014 with the Edinburgh Bibliographical Society. Felix, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: always, our first question concerns your own intellectual biography and how you ended up in your current position as postdoctoral researcher. How and when did you first know that you would become an intellectual historian?
2: In response uh, to the question, I think my first inclination is to refer to my undergraduate degree in history um, here in Cambridge. Um, when I arrived in Cambridge, I was offered a sort of daunting array of subject choices in my first year, and I opted for papers that focused just rather haphazardly on the 17th um, and 18th centuries, in part, I think, because I'd never studied those periods in any detail, and I had a vague suspicion that they were important. But I had no idea of what intellectual history was or even could be, I think, since I'd left high school with a somewhat sub name conviction that history was about great men high politics and diachronic maps of Central Europe. Um, and I'll just add, as an aside, that uh, the current Regis Professor of History and I had exactly the same high school teacher who had an extremely long career um, in Sydney and Australia. <laughs> and so it was really through the influence uh, of my supervisors in Cambridge um, that I, I came to appreciate what history, um, intellectual history um, the history of political thought really could be. And those supervisors included uh, Melissa Calarese, who eventually um, supervised me for my doctorate, Magnus Ryan, Mark Goldie, Peter Mandler, Boyd Hilton, and, and van Hont, who um, had a tremendous influence, I think, on, on the direction that my, my undergraduate studies took, and then, and then at, at MPhil, uh, my decision to focus, I think, substan- substantively uh, on the 18th century itself. The only thing that I might add is that um, my time in Cambridge as an undergraduate uh, coincided with what I think you might retrospectively describe as Quentin Skinner's Cambridge Apotheosis. It was the last few years um, of his time as the Regis Professor. The publication of Rethinking the Foundations of Modern Political Thought, I think, had occurred in the first year of my undergraduate degree. And as um, his time ran out in the position, there are any number of valedictory lectures given and, uh, I think, events held in his honour. And the combined result was that the history of political thought in the faculty held a somewhat exalted position. And I think, along with a few other people who are now professional academic historians, uh, were pulled into its orbit and I think have found it very difficult to escape.
0: So, I mean, as you mentioned, Cambridge has been an intellectual incubator for the history of 18th century political thought for quite some time. So could you describe to us what the significance of this uh, 18th century and intellectual history associated with Cambridge is, and what kinds of narratives about this period this specific scholarship has produced?
2: I think 18th century political thought in Cambridge has occupied a, a rather unusual position since the 1960s, and the standard narrative... Of the formation of the Cambridge School takes as one of its major events Duncan Forbes, uh, Duncan Forbes' special subject on David Hume. Um, but when we think about the school's early and I think predominant fixations, they tended to terminate in, in the 17th century. And a rather interesting exception is uh, Quentin Skinner's article on, on Viscount Ballenbrook for um, J.H. Plum's Festschrift. But I think otherwise the upper chronological limit of Quentin and John Donne's work, and, and even the early uh, John Pocock, uh, was either 1651 or 1678 to 1690. Um, now, this may be because Forbes himself had carved out the 18th century as um, his own territory, um, but there's also a moderate sense in which the 18th century of the early Cambridge School is simply something like the, a stale theatre for the reiteration of existing ideas. In some ways, Richard Tuck's philosophy and government uh, spells out this proposition insofar as it claims that the principal monuments of 18th century political thought prior to Kant uh, shared a derivative Hobbesian metaphysical superstructure and so it can't really be worthy of our extended attention. In more recent decades, I think particularly under the influence of people like Ishton Hunt, and Gareth Stedman Jones and John Robertson. Uh, The 18th century, I think, is assumed a central place in in the sort of political thought that's taught in Cambridge, and I think that has had a tremendous influence on my own vision of the early modern period and its sort of intellectual trajectory. I I view the 18th century really as a stage for the sort of decisive solution or at least um, attempt to find a solution for many of the outstanding problems of the early modern era in political thought and, and that's why I, I found it so interesting
1: you are currently working on a book about political thought on the italian peninsula in the 17th and 18th centuries focusing specifically on figures within the italian enlightenment can you tell us a bit about the existing literature in that particular field and elaborate on your own scholarly work and how it contributes to this literature
2: I think Italy in the later 17th and 18th centuries has a rather mysterious quality for Anglophone historians of political thought. The period coincides with what Eric Cochrane, I think, memorably described as Italy's forgotten centuries, and sometimes called uh, I Tempi Grigi, um, the, the grey period of, of Italian history, uh, by some Italian historians like Ernesto Pontieri. Um, and the conventional narrative of this period is that um, political thought had sunk somewhat irretrievably into an admixture of Tacitus or Machiavellian reason of state and Lipsian neo- stoicism. I think this is the substance of Mirito um, Viróli's uh, From Politics to Reason of State, uh, for example, which suspends its narrative in the early 17th century and, and only really revives it by the later 18th century as sort of an attempt to explain the Risorgimento. I think more recent work has Refine the story and focused on the 18th century itself. I think in an attempt to explain the transition or a transition um, from reason of state to political economy. And there's an argument that um, political economy effectively is reason of state in another guise or as a type of sublimation of reason of state um, pursued by intellectuals, and individuals. In polities where uh, the open discussion of political ideas was either frowned upon or actively persecuted. My own work, I think, has sought to challenge some of these ideas by focusing on the languages of politics in, in a wider variety of texts and manuscripts, um, with a particular emphasis on philosophy, and especially curricular moral philosophy, um, as a sort of dominant vehicle through which uh, political thought uh, was articulated. Um, in the 18th century itself. One of my principal objects, really, is to revise an extremely cogent and important narrative um, in the work of uh, Istvan student, Sofus Reinhardt, and in the work of John Robertson, um, particularly his book, The Case for the Enlightenment, that the Enlightenment itself can be understood as a process through which um, political economy became the singular mode through which Italian intellectuals um, express the desire for worldly amelioration. And again, reiterating this sense that the only way in which political thought could be safely expressed in the Settecento, of the 18th century was for it to fall under the rather protective blanket of writing on agronomy or agricultural improvement or coined monetary circulation. My own claim is that if you look rather more closely at a lot of the manuscript and textual remnants of politics in this era, you will find that a number of individuals were attempting to grapple with the the collapse or dissolution of the Aristotelian curriculum in philosophy by the late 17th century. And in doing so, they were grasping for a type of via media between... The alternative of Protestant natural law um, emanating from France, uh, northern France in particular, in the, uh, among the Huguenot refuge or, or the, the Netherlands, I should say, um, parts of Protestant Germany, and the conventional dictates of Catholic moral theology. And in attempting to reconcile these two traditions, they arrived at what I've argued is, is a rather extraordinary. Sort of intellectual compromise. And one of the most interesting figures in this narrative is the subject of my doctorate, uh, Antonio Genovesi, who was a professor of ethics and later political economy at the University of Naples in the mid-18th century, and who is conventionally described as really the father of Italian political economy. And you know, his supposedly most interesting works are those in which he translates uh, the works of certain physiocrats uh, from France, for example, or a mechanicalist named John Kerry from, from, from Britain. Um, whereas my contention is that if we look at his philosophy, particularly his four-volume Elemente Metaphysica*, the elements of metaphysics, we can find an extraordinarily interesting and exceptional political philosophy for the times, and particularly suited to conditions of political disfranchisement which I think you could fairly say affected the entire Italian peninsula among states which had previously been, say, republics with vital civil lives and through foreign invasion or the rise of uh, the domestic rise of monarchical regimes had really lost the uh, political verve, particularly the republican verve that had characterized um, their polities. And so Genovese is not alone in this attempt to find a type of politics or political thought which can suit these conditions, and the research I'm currently doing is attempting to explain how other individuals in other parts of Italy were engaged in a very similar enterprise.
0: Your research really draws from two methodological traditions uh, in the field of intellectual history. So you have the contextual approach of the Cambridge School, And then you also have the history of the book associated with scholarship such as Anthony Grafton and Robert Darton. So could you tell us a bit about the ways in which these two traditions approach sources in intellectual history and also how they might intersect?
2: My own position uh, is that I think both traditions are entirely compatible, um, the history of the book and um, sort of contextualism associated with the Cambridge School. I'd be in fact, inclined to say that historians of early modern political thought in particular are increasingly given to the use of technique, the sort of techniques that we associate with the history of the book, which is to say the consultation of marginalia, paratextual apparatus of texts, and an interest in historical bibliography. When I think about where my own research uh, fits within these two traditions, I've found that an emphasis on... The reconstruction of uh, the authorial intentions of an author, um, which, let's say, is the um, central concern of the, or the, methodological, you know, the central methodological concern of the Cambridge School, um, can work peaceably with an interest in certain textual remnants which might not otherwise have concerned the Cambridge School, say, in the 1960s. And I think the marriage of these two disciplines, or these two interests, I should say, is becoming increasingly common. And I'm thinking of um, a new sort of generation of historians of scholarship who have been, I think, raised to venerate both the Graftonian and, let's say, the Skinnerian method of intellectual history and to find a way to, to reconcile them.
1: One point at which the engagement with sources really becomes critical is when the authorship of a text is in dispute. You have recently discovered one such case that concerns two letters allegedly written by David Hume and you are now working on an article based on your research. Can you tell us about the status of these letters in Hume scholarship and what you have found out?
2: The story is curious, I mean it's somewhat also hilarious, um, but I do have to talk about it carefully since it concerns a living person. What it does provide is an interesting example of where diligence in the assessment of historical sources can have a meaningful effect on on matters of interpretation. Um, So the story briefly is this. Um, Some time ago, an established scholar in the United States uh, claimed to have discovered two letters by David Hume, among the papers of the deceased collector, uh, and this collector resided in Chicago. Uh, The scholar published the letters in two fairly eminent journals, and the letters subsequently entered into the mainstream of Hume scholarship as authentic Hume letters, authentic remnants of Hume's uh, thought at two crucial moments uh, in his life, Um, the first uh, from 1734, when Hume had supposedly commenced writing um, his treatise, and the second in 1765, when he had supposedly contemplated uh, writing an ecclesiastical history. Um, The Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, the authoritative biography of Hume, a number of of quite significant publications have have reproduced or paraphrased these letters, Um, yet... both of the letters, um, I can safely say, are, are forgeries, demonstrable um, forgeries. So the first letter f- from 1734, for example, is, is particularly important, since um, if we accept that it is authentic, it would be one of the only extant letters uh, from the first three decades of Hume's life. And its content would have quite profound implications for the study of Hume's philosophical reading in the years leading up to its composition of, of the treatise. So the, the point of emphasis here is that many of the, I think, interpretative tools which the history of the book has, has utilised or refined, um, such as provenance history, for example, can have fairly significant implications for received narratives about individual thinkers. And what I'm hoping that the, sort of the short article I'm writing about this case will, I think, prove, or at least recommend, is that historians become increasingly attentive, particularly historians of political thought, to issues about um, provenance, uh, manuscript authenticity, uh, manuscript transmission. Um, Not that they need much reminding, but uh, this is a particularly conspicuous or somewhat wild case of um, uh, or wild exception to the the rule, I think.
1: And if I may ask, how did you uh, come to Uh, realize that these letters were forgeries and how can you be certain that they are in fact forgeries?
2: Well, in fairness to um, a, a number of other scholars who I won't name, I think there'd been quite a lot of suspicion around the authenticity of these letters for a while, but I think I'm really the first person to investigate the problem um, rather thoroughly. And and the way in which I sort of realized that it was a forgery was not only in undertaking careful provenance research about the reported provenance of the letters, which I think if I were to sort of recapitulate here would strike all of your listeners as bizarre, but um, but more about the sort of substantive claims in the letter itself. There are obvious discordances between what Hume um, is saying in the letters and what we know about the sort of circumstances he's describing for example, Hume claims that he had access to John Locke's essay considering human understanding in 1734 in Rennes, in, in France within the library of a sort of rather renowned Jansenist yet if you go and find the library catalogue of this Jansenist you'll find not only that the library was extremely small but that he didn't remotely sort of conserve any works in anglophone philosophy let alone sort of philosophy generally um, and, and more importantly, when you investigate the circumstances of this Jansenist life, you realize that in 1734, the period in which Hume sort of purportedly had met him, he was living in a completely different place, um, far afield from, from Rem, and and um, could not possibly have interacted with Hume in that moment. I, again, have to be quite careful when I say um, who I think the letter was forged by and, and how certain I can be that it, it was forged in, say, the 20th century as opposed to Another time, but I think when the evidence is eventually presented, and I hope to do that quite soon, the the case will be fairly clear and, and somewhat unquestionable.
0: And ideally, working with sources in intellectual history does not always mean that we have to discredit and exclude previously accepted evidence, but also the fact that we sometimes unearth new sources. So you have edited a collection of Hume's letters published with the Edinburgh. Bibliographical Society in 2014, which contains previously unknown letters by you. So, could you give us an example of the ways in which a new source, i um, sorry, a new source, adds to or changes the picture we have of a political thinker like you?
2: The case I just described is an example of where a source is subtracted um, from the historical record. My own work um, on Hume has focused, I think. Mainly on the recovery of forgotten or unknown manuscripts um, that he wrote, or were in the case of letters addressed to him, and um, there are two particularly I think important uh, manuscripts which I've found, and, and both were published in in um, for the further letters of David Hume, um, which I do think add adds to the picture that we have of of Hume's thought. So the first letter um, is. A four thousand word document um, really written anonymously by Hume on behalf of one of his military patrons, uh, in which Hume is effectively pleading for the execution of a few dozen individuals and also for effectively what is the judicial torture of a twelve year old boy. Um, It's completely unprecedented in among the known letters um, and manuscripts. Uh, of Hume, and it really, I think, does change the picture of his relationship with his military patrons in this period, and also, I think, somewhat significantly, his moral compass and what he considered to be the justification for the death penalty um, in certain cases. The second example, somewhat similarly, um, I think does affect our understanding of, of Hume's personal morality, and and that is a letter from 1766, in which Hume is effectively instructing a different patron, um, his former employer as um, the charge d'affaires in in the embassy, the British embassy in Paris, a man named um, Francis Seymour Conway, or Lord Hartford. He is effectively instructing Hartford to purchase a number of slave plantations um, in the newly conquered Windward Isles. He is going so far as in this letter to suggest that it would be a fabulous investment that would benefit Hartford tremendously. And there is additional or ancillary evidence that Hume went further in this transaction by interacting with not only the plantation's owners, um, but the plantation's managers um, in the Caribbean. Now, I think both of those pieces of evidence, which were otherwise completely unknown to Hume's biographers, really would or ought to reshape Um, our understanding of his political thought, to to the extent that there is a significant body of literature on Hume's opinions about race or about punishment. And the addition of these sources, I think, can meaningfully affect um, the tenor of future debates on those topics.
1: Another way in which your work relates to questions about sources in intellectual history concerns your uh, current research on John Locke uh, and his two treatises of government and the context in which it was, this text was written. Uh, this text has a special status in Cambridge Scholarship on the history of political thought. So can you tell us why this is the case, why it does have a special role and which new insights your research brings to the table?
2: Well, I think, again, standard narrative of the history of the Cambridge School, rather propounded, I think, more by Quentin Skinner than anyone else, is that Peter Laslett critical edition of Locke's two treatises of government um, was a rather extraordinary moment for the development of the history of political thought and contextualism in anglophone circles. Um, The text was constituted by Lazard on the basis of extensive comparisons of some printed editions, uh, collations of variants within those editions, and also the consultation of a really remarkable copy of of Locke's two treatises conserved in Christ's College Library, which was supposedly discovered by a young undergraduate. And who was writing his weekly essay and, and brought to Lazart's attention soon after. And this copy contains what was, I think, for a long time thought to be, and particularly believed by Laszlo to be, Locke's own annotations and additions to a printed copy, to the uh, 1690 edition of the two treatises. More recent research by people like J.R. Milton and Delphine Soulard has really questioned the Um, attribution of these annotations to Locke and begun to sort of point towards Locke's amanuensis, a Huguenot journalist named Pierre Coste. And this, I think, is a sort of fundamental irony about the Cambridge School insofar as its sort of founding document, as it were, this edition by Laszler, just rests on rather shaky editorial foundations. Um, My own research doesn't look so much into these textual history of the two treatises, per se, but, but a bit of the sort of intellectual context surrounding its composition. And this has arisen really through my interest in one of Locke's close friends, sort of somewhat bizarre understudied figure called James Tyrrell. Um, Tyrrell is the subject of, of a pretty good monograph by Julia Rudolph, um, but his own sort of life and works really await sufficient study. And one of the most interesting aspects of it is that in 1681, he published a work which bears an extraordinary resemblance to the two treatises of government. It was called Patriarcha non Monarcha, And like the two treatises, it was a response to Robert Filmer's Patriarcha. Um, And there has long been some question surrounding whether Tyrrell himself was the author of this work or whether he actually co-authored it with Locke, who was a bit of a silent partner in the enterprise. And it spurred a quite interesting historical debate um, involving historical bibliography and techniques which we associate with the history of the book, in which people like Richard Tuck and David Woot and Peter Laslett have intervened in trying to resolve this question of whether Tyrrell and Locke co-authored this text, which if we were to accept this sort of principle of co-authorship would actually antedate the publication of the two treatises by 10 years, um, which is interesting insofar as it would provide Tyrrell with sort of an additional or rather more important status within the history of political thought. But it, it might also explain how uh, Locke reached some of his more fundamental or interesting conclusions about, for example, the labor theory of value. And so a lot of my own research um, has looked into the textual history of patriarch and non Monarcha, and into the, sort of, the manuscript remnants of Tyrell's life. And, and one of the most interesting things I've discovered is this really astonishing memoir by Tyrrell written in the hand of of another Huguenot journalist, a man called Pierre de Maisot, in which Tyrrell sort of provides a a history of his relationship with John Locke. This memoir is otherwise completely unknown. And at the beginning of the memoir he says something which I think would surprise a lot of historians of political thought, particularly the students of Locke, which is that throughout his um, acquaintance with Locke, Locke was obsessed with Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan. And in the 1650s, in Oxford in particular, Tyrrell says, Locke had Hobbes' Leviathan on his table at all times. You know, this has rather important implications for how we interpret Locke's political thought. And it really only came about through applying some of the more, I think, uh, conventional methods that we sort of associate with contextualism, archival research, um, really due diligence pouring over material in, in a rather dusty place. And I'm hopeful that it will sort of have a, a, a meaningful impact on, on the future edition of the two treatises, which is sort of planned um, to be edited for the Clarendon edition of the works of John Locke, and future studies of, of Locke's and Tyrrell's intellectual relationship.
1: With that, we've reached the end of today's episode of Interventions. Thank you very much, Felix, for talking to us and sharing your reflections about your research and uh, methods and sources in intellectual history. We have an exciting programme lined up for the next couple of months, so make sure to tune in to the next episode of Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast.